Would you bow your heads and would you pray together with me? Lord God, I pray that the words I'm about to speak and the thoughts that we think as we meditate on your word for us today, Lord, I pray that would all be truly acceptable in your sight. Oh God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer, who is the source of hope and strength in our lives. Amen. So I have a friend who shared with me a story recently about growing up, and you see, he had a problem growing up, and that problem was he had come to believe that there were monsters in his closet and under his bed. And, and that belief was so real for him, he was, he was very literally having trouble uh, getting to sleep at nights, and, uh, and he was really struggling with that, and finally his father came up with a brilliant idea. He took a, 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 a spray bottle of, this is just air freshener, but he put the words on it, monster spray. And he gave it to his son. He said, son, this is monster spray, and it's really, really good and really effective. All you have to do is spray a little bit of it under your bed and in the closet, and it works for 24 hours. It is guaranteed it will keep the monsters away. And so his son decided he was going to give it a try. And so that night, sure enough, as he was crawling into bed, he was, he was nervous and he was afraid, so he got out of bed and he got his can of monster spray and he sprayed it under his bed and he sprayed it in the closet and it worked. The monsters were gone. He wasn't worried. He wasn't afraid anymore and he was able to sleep that night really, really well. And the night after and the night after, he said it worked for many, many years. He used his monster spray and he was able to sleep. Now, he also shared with me that there was a little part of his mind that knew this was just air freshener. That, uh, that, that knew there wasn't really anything to this monster spray idea. But he said, but he, he just didn't let his brain go there. He didn't let himself think about that. He just kind of pretended that, 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 that he kind of went with what his dad said. And because of that, he didn't have to be afraid. So here's my question for you this morning. Is that what our faith is like? You know, we, we really love the idea that there's this, you know, big God up in the sky that is loving and all-powerful and is watching over us and taking care of us, and, and we really love the idea that we don't have to worry about dying because when we die, we're going to get to go to heaven and be with that God, and, and, uh, and, and, and maybe there's this little voice in the back of our head that goes, I don't know if all that stuff's true, but we, we don't let ourselves go there. We, we don't let our brain go there because we really like not having to be afraid is... Is our faith really just monster spray? Well, if you've ever felt that way, Luke's gospel is for you. Because, you see, Luke tells us that our faith isn't just, you know, kind of this make-believe thing, that, that it isn't just something we have to kind of hope is true. Uh, Luke says right at the beginning of his gospel this, he says, many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. He's talking about all that Jesus did, including his death and his resurrection. He said, they used the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. In other words, they talked to people that really saw this stuff. And then he says this, he says, having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus, and then notice what he says, so that you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. Well, let me say that one more time. Luke is telling you and me this morning 
that we don't have to just kind of have this make-believe faith or this kind of I, I hope it's true faith. He says that it is possible for us to be certain of what we have been taught. Now, who exactly was Luke? Now, if you've been around church much at all, you probably know that Luke was not one of the original 12 disciples. He, he was not an eyewitness to the things he writes about in his gospel. In fact, Luke was a very educated man. He was a, he was a physician, a doctor, um, and he was someone with a, with a mind that wanted to understand the facts. He wanted to understand the truth. And so we're told that Luke set out in his life to interview and talk to as many of the eyewitnesses as he could to what Jesus did during his life. We know from the book of Acts that he spent time hanging around with Paul and he heard about Paul's experience on that road to Damascus where he encountered the risen Jesus. We believe from church history that he also spent time with Peter, a lot of time with Peter, hearing Peter's stories about Jesus. In fact, many theologians believe that's why Peter never wrote a gospel, because Luke had written it all down for him. We even believe that he spent time with Jesus' mother, Mary, and that's why, um, hearing her side of the things like the birth of Jesus, that's why Luke's account of the birth of Jesus is, is so detailed, and even to the details of what Mary was thinking, you know, that Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Luke set out to investigate so he could be sure himself and eventually assure others. That's why he writes to Theophilus. Uh, Theophilus literally means lover of God. And we don't know whether that was a real person that he was writing to or he was kind of writing to all lovers of God. But he did that so that we could be as certain as he was that all these things he had heard about Jesus were indeed true. Now, as we read Luke's gospel, we see that Luke takes great pains to, to set the events he's talking about in real time, in real places, with real people. I mean, look again how he begins the, that story of Jesus' birth in Luke chapter 2. He says, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, of course, we've all heard of Caesar Augustus. He was the first emperor of the Roman Empire, very famous historical figure. But then notice, Luke doesn't stop there. He goes on and says, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, the fact is, Quirinius was a real guy. We know a lot about him from Roman history. We know that his full name was Publius Sulpicius Quirinius, and I got it right two times in a row. I blew it online, the online version if you watch it later. I didn't, I didn't get his name right. But anyway, he's a real guy. He, lived, he was born in 51 BC. He died in 21 AD. Uh, we know that he's mentioned numerous times in Roman documents and histories. We know that we have archaeologists have found coins that were minted in his name right there in Syria where Luke said he was. Uh, there's actually an inscription that was found commemorating a Roman officer who, by the order of Quirinius, conducted a census. Does that sound familiar? It's exactly what Luke was talking about. We know lots about his life, by the way. We know he was born in a, a place called Len Lenuvium, uh, which is a, a, like a suburb, a Latin suburb not far from Rome. We know he had two different wives. We know their names. We know he divorced them both. He didn't have any kids. And in fact, we actually have a written account of his public funeral that happened in 21 AD. This is, a, this is a real guy. So, you know, Luke doesn't include him because he has any theological significance. Luke includes him 
to, to add that detail to lend credibility to his account. To help us see that, again, this story about this birth of Jesus isn't some make-believe fantasy, but is a real event that happened in real time with real people at a real historical moment. Luke does this again just a chapter later at the beginning of chapter 3. He writes this. He says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah. Now, now, first of all, that's one of those readings that if you're the, the lay reader for the weekend and you see you've got to read that, you go, oh no, geez, why did I get picked for this week, right? But, but, but so why does Luke have those names in there? To make it hard for lay readers? No. Again, he's, he's rooting these stories in an actual time. And every single one of those people are people that you can look up and you can learn about. You know, uh, Herod and, um, and Lysanias and even the high priests, Annas and Caiaphas. There's, there are independent written records about them outside of Scripture that verify that they were real people, again, in a real time. Now, now, kind of interestingly in this one, there is one of those people that for many years historians were pretty dubious about, and that's actually Pontius Pilate. Now, Pontius Pilate plays a pretty big role in Luke's account, and in fact, in the other Gospels as well. And, uh, and, and one of the problems is that up until fairly recently, Pontius Pilate, people didn't really know hardly anything about him. There's nothing in the Roman records about him. We don't know when he was born, when he died. We don't, we don't know that he was a real person. And in fact, interestingly enough, historians would point to Pontius Pilate name there and they would say, now we don't know that that guy existed, so see, you can't trust Luke. Now isn't it interesting? Luke just gave them a whole list of verifiable people in history and they picked the one name that they're worried about and say that you gotta throw out all Luke. You know, it's, it's, you can't trust him. Now that was until 1967 when uh, they were actually rebuilding an amphitheater that's in a place called Caesarea Maritima. And, uh, and as they were rebuilding it, they found that an earlier rebuild had used some older stones, and one of those stones was this one that is inscribed Tiberium Pontius Pilatus, prefect of Judea. In, in other words, it verified that Pilate was a real person, and in fact, this whole amphitheater had been built and dedicated to him. Now, what historians think happened is somehow he got on the wrong side of Tiberius Caesar and, and, and Caesar wiped his name out of the Roman records. That's why we don't find him there. But, but, but this archaeological dig proved that even Pontius Pilate, who we didn't know a lot about, was again a real person set in real time. And Luke is trying to help us see that, that these events he's talking about about Jesus are not just monster spray. They're not just made-up stuff to make us feel good. But he talked to real eyewitnesses who very clearly told him these stories about who Jesus was and, and what Jesus had done. Now, there's another way that Luke seeks to convince us that, that what we believe, that these things that we have been taught are accurate and true. 
He, uh, he, in uh, Luke chapter 18, we read this. It says, And taking the twelve, he, and that's Jesus now, uh, said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. Now, in, in my ESV Bible that I use when I'm writing sermons, there are some headings that weren't in Luke's original gospel, but other writers have added to help you, you know, kind of see how the book is organized. And over this part, the heading says, for the third time, Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. And, and that's true. If you go back and look, Luke has talked about it a, a, a couple of other times, more than any of the other gospel writers. In other words, the other thing Luke is trying to help us see after talking to all these eyewitnesses is that time and time again, Jesus told them exactly what was going to happen to him. Jesus knew what was going to happen. And then later in Luke's gospel, in Luke 24, it says, Then he, again it's Jesus, opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, this is, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. Luke is telling us that not only did Jesus time and time again predict exactly what was going to happen to him, those things actually did happen to them, happen to him, and he's talked to the witnesses that Jesus is talking about here. The witnesses that finally understood all those predictions Jesus had made and finally knew what his death and resurrection were all about. And Luke says, I've heard them. I, I've, these witnesses have told me. Again, he wants to do that for us so that we can trust that what he's writing about Jesus is accurate and true. Now, now by the way, I hope that you are spending some time reading uh, these Gospels as we've encouraged you to do. I know back on Easter Sunday, uh, we made available these reading guides to help you read through that week the Gospel of Matthew and then the next week the Gospel of Mark. And I've been doing that. And even though I've read through those Gospels, who knows how many times before, there's just been something special about taking a week and, and looking at the whole Gospel in the context of understanding what it's all about and why it was written by the author. And it's been great reading through Matthew and Mark. And I'm looking forward to reading through Luke this week. But while you do that, you will see that it's not just a bunch of historical names and dates. And, uh, you know, and a bunch of predictions by Jesus. Of course, it's got some incredible miracles that Jesus did, these eyewitnesses' accounts of these incredible miracles, miracles like the feeding of the 5,000, which, by the way, if you read through all four Gospels, you will find it's the only miracle that is in all four of the Gospels. It's, it's told from all different Gospel writers' perspective. But, but one of the miracles that's only in Luke's gospel is this one about the, the widow at Nain, we call it. Luke tells us how Jesus one day with his disciples was heading into this village called Nain, and there was a woman, a widow, coming out with the body of her son, and, and she's a widow. She's already lost her husband, and now we're told that this isn't just the body of her son, but it's her only son. In other words, the, the two men in her life are now both gone, and in the society of that day, that meant very dire things for her. But we're told that Jesus has compassion on her, and he raises her son from the dead. What an amazing miracle. But notice, when Luke tells us that miracle, he, 
again, gives us a detail that this was the village of Nain. And it's as if Luke is saying to the author, and if you don't believe me, go to Nain. You can go there. It's a real place. And talk to the people there, and they will tell you about this miracle that Jesus did. And by the way, if you wanted to today, you could go to Nain. Now, probably not today. I don't think they're letting tourists in yet, right? But, but, but someday, if you go to Israel, you can go to Nain. It's still there. It's still a village. And they still talk about what Jesus did there all those years ago. Another thing that you'll find as you read through the, through the Gospel of Luke is that Luke does just an incredible job sharing these amazing parables of Jesus. And in fact, I think three of my favorite parables of Jesus are all together in one chapter. In Luke chapter 15, the parable of the, the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son, or the prodigal son as we call it. But again, Luke has, has a parable that only appears in the Gospel of Luke, and, uh, and I want to make sure that you pay attention to that, because I, I think Luke is trying to tell us something at the end of that parable. It's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Jesus is telling this story about a rich man and a, a poor man named Lazarus who um, used to live out and beg outside of the rich man's gate, and how they both died at the same time, and, and, and Lazarus goes to, to heaven and, and the rich man to hell. And he talks about this conversation between the rich man and Father Abraham in heaven. And, uh, and it's a beautiful parable that teaches an amazing point. But near the end of it, there's something I want to make sure you don't miss. See, as a part of that conversation, the, the rich man uh, says to Father Abraham, I realize it's too late for me. But what about my brothers back in my father's house? He says, I beg you, Father, to send Lazarus to my father's house so that he may warn them. By the way, isn't it interesting that the rich man still thinks Lazarus should be his servant? He says, send Lazarus to my father's house so that he may warn them. But Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. In other words, he says, they have the written scriptures. That should be enough for them to believe and to understand and the rich man says, no, Father Abraham, but, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. In other words, he says, if they see someone rise from the dead, that will convince them that the written scriptures are accurate and truthful. And Abraham says, you know what? If they won't listen to the writings, if that's not enough to convince them, even if someone was raised from the dead, it's not going to be enough. So here's my question for you. Is what Luke has written for you enough? Because if it's not, Luke seems to be saying that even if Jesus were to appear right now before us, you still wouldn't believe. Luke is challenging us to understand that, that our faith is more than just kind of an idle hope in monster spray. It's more than just something we believe in even though it doesn't make sense because it takes away our fear and makes us feel good. Now, Luke is saying that, that these eyewitnesses' accounts, which, by the way, again, he wrote at a time when people could go talk to those same eyewitnesses if they wanted. He said, that's enough for you to know that your faith is, is accurate and true, and you can be confident of that. One last story. Um, in the 1970s and 80s, here in the Chicago area, there was a writer for the Chicago Tribune named Lee Strobel. 
He'd gone to Yale Law School, and he was an investigative journalist, and he was well-known and well-decorated in his field for, uh, he received awards for the stories he wrote, but Strobel was an atheist, and his wife was an atheist too. In fact, he, he shares in one of his books that they used to sometimes just kind of sit and make fun of Christians and what they believed. And then, then one day, his wife had some news for him. She had been invited to go to a Willow Creek Community Church out in Barrington with one of her friends. And the more she had gone, the more she had listened to, the more she had become convinced that the stuff about Jesus was real. That he really had died on a cross for her sins. That he had risen from the dead for her. And, and he said to her, wait, you're trying to tell me you're becoming a Christian? And she said, I am. Now he was really disappointed in that because he's like, I, I'm... You know, we used to make fun of Christians, and now you are one. And he decided that he would use his investigative journalism skills that had won him all those wards to in investigate this stuff about Jesus so he could prove to her and, by the way, to himself that this Christianity was all just monster spray, right? You know what? The opposite happened. The more he studied the Gospels, the more he studied the eyewitness accounts, the more he came to believe that there really was someone named Jesus who had lived and died all those years ago. And more than that, he became convinced that that Jesus did indeed rise from the dead exactly as he had said he was going to do. And so one day, Lee Strobel gathered his friends down at the Chicago Tribune together around the water cooler, and he told them, I've become a Christian. Folks, Luke is trying to help us know, beyond a doubt, that our faith isn't just wishful thinking. That our faith is rooted in a real person that existed in real time and that lived a real life and died a real death for us and really rose from the dead so that we don't have to fear death, but instead we can trust in Jesus. Amen.